you stay standing, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8. So if you get your Bibles open or your widgets, whatever it is you're using, uh, we're going to finish up this first section of Acts. We've called it Hearing and Responding. We're going to be moving into, in two weeks, or actually three, because next week is Joel Richardson, which I hope you'll be coming to as many of those gatherings as you can, the gospel of the kingdom and the age to come. And then on March 30th is Good Friday, but then Sunday, April 1st is Easter. So in three weeks, we'll start another the next 10 chapters, Seeking and Saving, and then the final 10 chapters, we're going to talk about building a testimony, making a testimony. So this morning, Acts chapter 8, I'm going to read some of the verses, but I want to note that seven times in this chapter, the word preached is used. So it's more than any other chapter in Acts. This is a transition chapter, so we're going from, uh, we'll talk about that in a moment, but it's transitional into chapter 8, and then 8 through 12, and then 13, we start another section of Acts. So in this uh, Acts chapter 8, I'm going to begin reading verse 1. So if you'll follow me. Now Saul was consenting to his death, that is Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Verse 25. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord... They returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, he preached Jesus to him, the Ethiopian eunuch. And it ends, the chapter ends with this verse 40. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Father, we thank you for your word and so appreciate Sophia, her prayers. Lord, we want to hear what you're speaking to us. We want to leave here changed. Lord, we know if we have an encounter with you, that's going to change us. We know that your word is living and powerful. We know you've given up your Holy Spirit to teach us all things, bring to remembrance the things you've commanded us, that, Lord, you are interacting with us as we get in your word and honor your word, which we will do, that you might speak to us. So I'm asking, Lord, the things that I prepared, break them fresh, feed us, we're hungry. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So give us ears to hear not just to hear then, Lord, but then to do the things that you would put in our minds this morning. Bless us our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So Christians, as you know, we have a mandate from God to preach the gospel to everyone. So three, I, I've outlined this chapter as this. Verses one through four, preach Jesus everywhere you go. Secondly, in the main part, five through 38, Preach Jesus so someone will know. And then in the final two verses, preach Jesus wherever, everywhere you go. So you might think, well, that's a mistake to say. No, it's the same because that's what we're talking about this morning. Preaching Jesus everywhere you go. The gospel is the power of the Spirit of God on the offense to save people from the devil, from sin, from death, and from hell. Jesus put it this way. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. It's the dividing line, the gospel, what we're preaching. In, in Romans chapter 1, Paul said, So as much as in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. He's ready. Are you ready? We're, all, we're to be in season, out of season with this thing, the treasure that we have in earth and vessels. says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in, Ro who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who what? Believes. The Bible says, how will they believe? We'll look at this in a moment. We must be telling them, preaching Jesus to them. So we have a mandate from God to preach the gospel. Now, my desire in speaking about this this morning, and as we've gone through the first uh, eight chapters in Acts, there seems to be a rising awareness of my need to be telling people about Jesus. Now, my circles that I run mostly are Christians. I'm a pastor. And I used to be very much in the secular world in construction. I'm not now. 
And so as I'm going through this, and particularly this one, to wrap up this section of hearing and responding, I think the Holy Spirit is saying to me, but I also think to the church, to us this morning, and I hope we will say, Lord, please give me a burden for lost people. He who does not believe is condemned. Break my heart for the souls of people who are in sin, separated from you, on their way to an eternal destiny that separates them from you forever. And I ask the Lord in my own heart, give me that brokenness. Give me that unction. Would you pray that also as we look today? We have a mandate from God to preach the gospel. It's the great commission, as I've said before. It's not the great suggestion. It's the most powerful thing this world will ever be hearing is the gospel of Jesus Christ that can save them from one of the most powerful things that will ever, the most powerful thing, and that is sin, and one of the most powerful beings in all of creation, that is the devil. He wants to keep people bound. Jesus came to, listen, destroy the works of the devil. He did that on the cross. So preach the word of God. Preach Jesus Christ. Preach the kingdom of God. Preach the gospel. So let's get out there. Can I hear an amen? Into the fields that are already white to harvest. Let's lift up our eyes and see there are many, many people, myriads of people, multitudes of people who are hungry for something. They just don't know what it is. They need to hear, as it says there, preach Jesus. Someone, someone will know. They'll hear that. Romans 10, 11. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? We're all preachers. Can you hear an amen? You know, well, I'm the preacher. No, we're all preachers. We're to be preaching to God. That just means proclaiming the kingdom of God, proclaiming Jesus Christ, proclaiming the word of God. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Who sends us? Jesus. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. How We are already sent. The commission is there. So we're told to go out. As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Do you ever look at your feet? They're beautiful when they're gospel uh, shoed. When we put on our, our, our gospel shoes as is part of the armor in Ephesians 6, and, and putting on the gospel that we are walking through this world with an awareness that we're walking with the gospel as the foundation of everything that we do. The gospel. But... Now listen to what he says here. But they have not all obeyed. That doesn't mean everyone's going to listen. It doesn't mean everyone's going to obey. They have not all obeyed. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And that's a question we'll leave to God. Who's believing? We'll look at that a little bit more in our study. Who has believed our report? Well, we're going to look at a possible picture of a false conversion. That's not ours. They have not all obeyed. Ours is, as he says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Who's going to believe? Well, they can't believe unless they've heard it. We are to be his ambassadors. We're to be his voice. And I know as believers, if you know the Lord at any time, you understand that, you know that. I'm saying, Lord, let it be known, not in my head. You see, when it's in the head, the have to is something that is mechanical. It's in my head. I have to. But, Lord, bring that to my heart. And now it's the same thing. I have to. In other words, I can't but not preach the gospel because God has done that work in my own heart. So as we move now into the second section of Acts, chapter 8 transitions us out of Jerusalem into all of Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the outline of the book of Acts. Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be, my wit- you shall be witnesses to me in, first of all, Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 8. In all Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. And then to the end of the earth, chapters 13 through 28. So this is transitional. The transition as we see it wasn't very smooth. It wasn't something the church planned. It was a transition out of persecution. Paul wrecking havoc on the church, going into homes and dragging Christians out and putting them in prison. Not what we would say, well, that's good news. But God causes all things to work together for good, not to just anyone, but to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is able to take all those things and use them to further his plan, his church. Preach, that's what they did. They went out and they preached the gospel. 
They sowed the seeds of the gospel. They did it eagerly. They did it with intensity. They did it tirelessly. And so the question I ask myself, is that me? Eager, tireless, intentional? I was greatly ministered to by Billy Graham's, they had a one-hour video. I don't know if you've seen it, but if you haven't, I would suggest that you do. Call it An Extraordinary Life. And in that film, that, that little synopsis of his life, the testimony of his life from others was this. He had one message, and it was Jesus Christ. One message of the gospel. No matter where he went, no matter who he was with, he preached Jesus. He told people Jesus is God's answer to all the problems of life. Jesus is God's son who died on the cross to take care of our sin. And wherever he went, whoever he was talking to, big audiences or small, his faith, well, how did he do that? Here's it. He, his faith was anchored, if you listen, to the word of God. That's where his faith was anchored, in the word of God. His assurance was steadfast in the love of God. And his confidence was not in himself, but in the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel in his life. And that's what made it when he would talk to one of the uh, interviews I watched when we were in Florida was when Woody Allen interviewed Billy Graham. That was in 1969. And you watch that video. It was, how many of you have seen that? It is so invigorating because here's this guy, Billy Graham, Huge ministry, well-known, but he is just a normal guy. And he's talking to Woody Allen, one of the most secular, a very secular, and he's enjoying the conversation with Woody Allen, having some great back and forth, some good laughs. And so he preached the gospel with a gentle and penetrating boldness. And he would just say, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that. He was interviewed by, on the, in, what, by William Buckley in the, in the firing line. He was interviewed by Larry King and all those things. You look at the man, and he's just a normal guy who loves Jesus and has one message. He's not going to be steered away from it by anything that secular, he wasn't intimidated by that. He would just speak the word of God. I'll talk about that in another minute. So preach Jesus everywhere you go. Preach Jesus so someone will know. And preach Jesus everywhere you go. Now, the, uh, the animosity and attacks were getting worse and more and more vicious against the church. Note, those devout men were not lamenting Stephen's sermon. They were lamenting Stephen stoning his death. They would have loved to have heard another sermon as, Peter, as, Philip, as Stephen preached it. It was full of truth. It was convicting. It was something that was bold. And he stood and he declared the word to them, their whole history. It got him killed. It wasn't the sermon. It was the stoning. They would miss him, and that's a part of life. Here are, here are two men, Stephen and Saul, worlds apart. One man is willing to die for his convictions. The other, Saul, is willing to kill for his. One man's passionately loving Jesus Christ. The other, Saul, is violently hating him. One man is determined to further the kingdom of God, Jesus' kingdom. The other is determined to stamp it out. Brother, that's the two camps and the only two camps. There are the believers and there are the unbelievers. And it's in, they're in conflict with each other. We can expect that. And thus we have a picture here of Stephen and Saul completely opposite. Now, as Saul is wrecking havoc, we'd say, well, that is bad news. It seems like bad news. And it's not good. But as I said, God will cause us to work together for good. God, in his love, will frustrate that which is intended for evil, and he will use it for good. It's exactly what happens here. It's not without pain. It's not without loss. But it's, it's understanding that our pain and our loss is temporary. We are going into an eternal kingdom, and we want to bring as many as we can with us. A 15,000-plus member church in Jerusalem fleeing? Are they being diminished? Don't you believe it? What's happening here is the church is expanding exponentially in the providence of God's working among them. And the interesting thing is Saul furthered that 
when he was trying to stamp it out. And that's what, how God does it. Ironically, Saul's persecution caused people to flee to Antioch. And as God would do it later, this is the very place that Saul would begin his ministry when he came to know Christ. And that's what the Lord does. He turns it upside down and right side up, which is what he did with Saul. God used this persecution to scatter the church, to grow the church, and that's exactly what happened. You know, trials and tribulations for the believer are things that God is using in our lives to deepen our roots in him, to further his work of strengthening us in a Godless world. He wants us to be as trees planted by the rivers of water. And so the storms come and the trials come. Persecution, we will be getting, I believe we're going to be seeing more and more of that. That's not, in the, for the believer, that's not something we can sort of evade. We won't evade it because there's two camps. But we can trust God in it because he is good and he's going to work all things out together for good. And when it's all said and done, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with what? The glory which shall be revealed in us. That's what Paul said in the Romans. It's, he said, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And we have to keep our eyes on the kingdom, our eyes upward when things get difficult, and they will. When storms come, and they will. When the foundation seems to be shaken, and it is. God's going to shake everything. So that which cannot be shaken will remain, and that's the kingdom of God. So they were scattered, that word used there is sowing seed. Their lives, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Their lives were like seeds going out now, being blown by the wind of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to then plant them in different places. What the world needs is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of Jesus. Not preaching social reform, nothing wrong with that. Not preaching feel-good, smiley sermons or sermonettes. What the world needs is the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of Jesus, the preaching of the word of God, the preaching of the kingdom. These believers went everywhere preaching Jesus. And I say, hey, Jesus, I want to go everywhere and preach, tell people about you. Preach Jesus, his virgin birth, perfect life, sacrificial death, bodily resurrection. Preach the word of God, all that God has to say about sin, death, hell, and judgment. Preach the Bible, what it has to say about God's love and his forgiveness and his salvation. Preach repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the synopsis of Paul the Apostle's ministry. He preached repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen preached, Philip preached, not wishy-washy, worldly dribble. They preached the powerful gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation. Daniel Webster was a great politician, orator, and scholar. When he lived in Washington, D.C., he attended a small country church faithfully. One day, his niece came to him and said, Uncle Danny, why do you go to that little church? There are many large, fashionable churches in the city where you can hear a much better delivery. He replied, young lady, in the fancy churches, they preach to Daniel Webster, the statesman. But in my church, they preach to Daniel Webster, the sinner, and they tell me about Jesus. See, the gospel is not only preached outwardly, we got to preach the gospel to ourselves all the time. We are who we are because what Jesus accomplished for us as sinners. You can't understand the good news until you know the bad news. Noah's message from the ramp of the ark was not Something good is going to happen to you. Jeremiah's was not put, Jeremiah was not put in the pit for preaching, I'm okay, you're okay. Daniel was not put into the lion's den for telling people, possibility thinking will move mountains. John the Baptist was not forced to preach in the wilderness and eventually beheaded because he preached, smile, God loves you. The two prophets of the tribulation, we might be hearing from Joel, the two prophets of the tribulation will not be killed for preaching God is in his heaven and all is right with the world because all is not right with the world and particularly in the tribulation period. What was the message? What is our message the believers preached? It was exactly what Jesus himself preached and he said this, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what we bring to people, preaching Jesus. Preach Jesus not only 
everywhere you go, but preach Jesus so someone will know. In the story, we, these three different pictures, there were some of those ones in the multitude that came to know through the preaching of the gospel. Notice verse 6. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with, crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. The net result of preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus, multitudes listened and some responded. Great joy was in that city. Great joy always follows the receptivity of the gospel. Where the gospel goes and is received, great joy. That's not saying happiness. It's joy. It's that understanding that no matter what is happening, my God, the joy of the Lord is my strength. In all that's happening, he is with me. So look at some ones in the multitudes might come to know. Secondly, verses 9 through 24, someone claiming to be great might come to know. Notice verse 9, and this is a transition, it's a contrast. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Here is this contrast is drawn. You have people that are being saved in Samaria, but now Luke draws our attention, a certain man called Simon. In Samaria, many heeded, but in Simon, we're questioning, is it true? Is it real? Is it genuine? Now, we can't know for certain, as we are not called, God does that. We don't know for certain, but it's possible that the contrast here is between an authentic salvation experience and a counterfeit conversion experience. The contrast between real believer and a make-believer. That might be the contrast we're looking at. I'll give you a couple more things that you can think on yourself. Simon the Magnificent, Simon the Great One. Before Philip ever arrived, this area had been swayed by his powerful presence. Simon was, first of all, full of himself. He was no doubt a dynamic personality. He, people just, he would make, let people know just how incredible he is. He was. He liked being the center of attention. I say, preach Jesus. Someone who, who is saying, I'm great, preach Jesus. Why? When someone is seeking the spotlight, Jesus is brighter. When someone is seeking attention, Jesus is more amazing. When someone is seeking to be someone great, listen, Jesus is greater. Preach Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Simon was not only full of himself, but listen, he was full of the devil. He was a sorcerer. He practiced magic and witchcraft. He was not a magician as we might think of a magician, doing the sleight of hand tricks to entertain an audience. He was backed up by demonic powers. That's what the, the text would tell us. It's occultic activity. Simon had a very real demonic powers working in and through him. We are told as believers, don't mess with that. Let Jesus mess with that. The Lord rebuke you. We are to stay as far away as we can from these things, except that with Christ and the gospel, we can go forward and preach Jesus because he has overcome the devil. He's destroyed his works. In the first century, these occultic practices ran rampant. They still do today. The devil is alive and well on planet Earth. Now, he has good ways of disguising himself. When we, we've, got, we've spent five months in Nepal several years ago and other countries that I've been in. There's a much more awareness of a presence of evil in that way. But the devil knows he's the master deceptor, deceiver. And so he's active. We are told to stay far away from things that have anything to do with these demonic things. One of them would be that I think, I'm not sure how popular that is now, it used to be horoscopes. I say stay away from those things. Rather than read your horoscope, read the Holy Bible. Let the Word of God speak to you. Because behind these things 
are those tentacles of Satan trying to take hold of your heart and move you away from trusting God with all your heart, believing him for everything that's going on, not looking for some seance or something in the future. When my grandfather died, this was a little shocking to me because my grandfather and my grandmother were both believers in Maine. My grandmother, my grandfather died. It so upset my grandmother that she actually went to a seance to try and get him to come up. I said, what are you doing? And I sent her some scriptures. God says, stay away from these things. There's no need to dabble in them. Just stay as far. I want to stay as far away as I can from anything that might get its tentacles in my heart, my mind. We're talking about sinister forms of magic. There are occultic practices. Preach Jesus. The devil and all the forces of darkness combined are no match for the matchless king of kings and lord of lords. With one word, he will fell them. Keep Jesus between us. Now notice verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. This is interesting to me. The apostles in Jerusalem heard what was happening in Samaria. They sent two of the most eminent apostles, Peter and John, who prayed for them to receive the Holy Spirit, verses 14 through 7, 15 through 17. Why had they not received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? We are taught, as I, I went into this in Acts chapter 2 as well as a couple other studies, there are three relationships clearly taught in the New Testament that we have with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said to his disciples, that the Holy Spirit will, is with you and will be in you. The first, he's with us before conversion, before salvation. He's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The second relationship, he is in us at salvation, we are born again by the Spirit of God. That's our new life, is in the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God. This third relationship, which in Acts chapter 1 says, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, the epi, uh, coming upon of the Holy Spirit, is either at salvation or subsequent to salvation. You'll find this in the book of Acts. We'll hit it when we get to these different places. Here is an example of subsequent to believing and being baptized. So why, why would they... Paul and, and um, Peter come down to pray for them to receive the Holy Spirit. I think there's three possible reasons, maybe others. One, to authenticate this new work of the Spirit to the apostles themselves in Jerusalem. Secondly, to confirm Philip's ministry. He was not an apostle, but his ministry to the Samaritans validated by the coming of the Holy Spirit when they came. But here's, I think, probably one of the most important ones. It was to prevent any schism, any faction from taking place because the Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other very well. But that's the church. That's what God brings together. So possibly to prevent the problem of these guys, and it's like Peter and John come down from Jerusalem and they say, welcome into the forever family of God. That's some possibility that's going on there. Someone claiming to be great did come to know. Verse 19, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay, my, I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So evidently there were signs going on through the, laying on, through the coming of the Holy Spirit that Simon saw, and his first response from his heart is, Here's some money. Can I have that too? The gospel is not give me. The gospel is forgive me. Notice verse 20. But Peter said to him, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter for your heart is not right in the sight of God. This leads me to believe that he's not saved. It just happened. Repent therefore of your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Heart check. Simon wanted to purchase the gift of God. Simon wanted the power of the Holy Spirit for his own personal gain. This is where the term simony comes in. Simony is the practice of obtaining positions in the church through underhanded means. 
cutting deals, playing politics, giving and receiving bribes. This practice of purchasing position and power became a curse in the church. There was a period in the Catholic Church from about 984 to 1012 where the office of the Pope was sold to the highest bidders. And what happened is the Pope's office time was very short. There was bribery and all kinds of corruptness going on, and so one would precede the other depending on how much money they had. This was in part why it was called the Dark Ages, because of what was going on in the church. In medieval times, the Catholic Church also sold indulgences, claiming that people could buy their way out of purgatory. You can't buy your way out of sin. The popular American folk song, All My Trials, cautions us, says, if religion were a thing that money could buy, the rich would live and the poor would die. Has not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, to inherit the kingdom? We are poverty stricken, nothing to offer God. God is not for sale. We cannot cut a deal with God. Nonetheless, we find Christian books like this one, titled is How to Write Your Own Ticket with God. You know what we have to do with God? We got to get on board through Jesus Christ. He's our ticket. And the only one there is. And we just get on board by faith through repentance. God will never be compelled to do our bidding as though he needed anything. What are we going to add to God? Salvation is not me making a bargain with God as though I had something to offer him. Salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I know I'm telling you what you already know, fellow believers, but we need to hear it again and again and again. This is why we are preaching the gospel. We are just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. We're as bankrupt as anyone. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. And thus this reminds us again, salvation is a gift received only through genuine repentance from sin. The gift of the Holy Spirit cannot be purchased. It is the gift of God, as Paul, as, uh, as uh, Simon was told. We are not going to get into heaven through our good works. Can I hear an amen on that? We are all on level ground. And the gospel has given to us this gift of salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit and the presence of God in our lives from now and forever. A teacher was asking the children in the Sunday school class, if I sold my house and my car, had a big garage sale and gave all my money to the church, would I get into heaven? No, the children answered. If I cleaned the church every day, mowed the yard and kept everything neat and tidy, would I get into heaven? Again, the answer was no. Well, he continued, then how can I get into heaven? In the back of the room, a five-year-old boy shouted, you got to be dead. Yes, <laughs> out of the mouths of babes. Hey, that's the deal. But the question is, are you saved when you die? You see, because there's two places, two destinations. So we're gonna, I'm going to give you an opportunity today. I'm going to have a Jesus call, not calling to an altar or a stage or a person. The call is to Jesus, that you would repent of your sin. There's only one way, and you can't pay your way through it, is to come to God and realize you are bankrupt spiritually. You are separated from God. The eternal destiny is on the line. It's the dividing line. And if you receive Christ Jesus as your Savior, you'll repent of your sin. You not might be saved. You will be saved in a genuine repentance and sincerity. You understand you're a sinner, and you want to get right with God. We're going to give you, I'm going to give you an opportunity when we're done, if that's you. I want you to think about that. It's an, it's an urgent message. It's a great message. You don't understand the good until you really understand the bad, and things are bad if you're not right with God. But things can be all right when you get right with God through the righteousness of Christ, through repentance and faith. The gospel will not cost, cost you penance. It will cost you repentance. So unless and until people know and understand exactly how wrong they are before a righteous God, until they know and understand how guilty they are before a just God, until they know and understand they're condemned before a holy God, until that's understood, the gospel loses its power. That's why we must preach the word of God, preach these truths. 
preach Jesus, let their confession of, lest their confession of faith, their profession before others, their experience of salvation, what they thought, would be false at best and damning at worst. Now, again, I think there's a little bit too much scrutiny that goes on sometimes in is it a, is it a genuine conversion? Really, the only one we need to worry about that is ourselves. We preach the gospel, we believe the gospel. There's been people I've heard disparaging Billy Graham. Well, he's doing these massive things, and people, you know, a lot of people are coming forward, but is it genuine? That's up to God. I know what the Bible says, I know what the gospel is. If you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be, you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in your heart God raised from the dead, you what? Will be saved. It's no more complicated than that. The love of God given to us through the gift of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Preach the word to we who attend church, we who give to the church, we who serve in the church. We're not keeping up our end of the bargain. We're doing it because we love God. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, we just, in our prayer meeting yesterday, I, I was prompted a little bit to pray for our church along the lines of the seven churches in Revelation. We only got through the first one. The first one was the chapter, the uh, church at Ephesus. Jesus said, I know all that you're doing. It's great. It's wonderful. But I have this against you in that you have left your first love. You see, the motivating, the right motivation is always from love for God and love for people. And the church at Ephesus that was known for its love had fallen, had you, you've left. He didn't say you've fallen. You've left your first love. You made some decisions. Now Jesus isn't the preeminent one. God's not your first love. There's others. He's saying, hey, repent. Come back to Christ. Let that love of God move you toward speaking for him to other people. We're not, in that sense, we're obligated to God because we, he loved us. That's our obligation. It's the obligation of love. See, what we needed is what everyone needed. We need to be reconciled to God. We need to be reconciled to God. And God on his son who knew no sin, became sin for us that we might be reconciled to God through him. We might obtain his righteousness through him. Only the word of God can pierce the darkness of sin in a person's life and expose the motivations of the heart. And that's what's happening here with Simon. So what's the motivation in my heart now that I'm a believer? See, there's still that work of the Holy Spirit searching me out. Why do I do what I do? Why do you do what you do? What's the motivation of the heart? You see, it's a heart thing in relationship with God. Why are you jealous of another person's success? That's a heart issue as believers. Why are you troubled because another is chosen? That's a heart issue to bring to God and allow his love to flood through our hearts and wash it away when we realize we all stand on level ground. Was Simon saved? As he said to them in verse 24, Pray to the Lord for me that none of these things which you have spoken may come upon me. Was he saved? Again, we'll have to leave that up to God. But the evangelist George Whitfield was once asked how many converts he had after preaching an event in New England. His answer is very good. He said, ask me again in five years. Ask me again in five years. Someone comes forward. That's great. We love that. But now what's going to happen in their lives? It's, talk, it's said that there was a Simon in the early church writings that he became the first antichrist and went from place to place opposing the gospel. Is it the same Simon? I'm not sure on that. But it is written in the annals of church history. The important question is this. Are you right in your heart in the sight of God? Are you hearing and responding to the word of God as the Holy Spirit of God searches you and shows you the things and the motivation of your heart? That's the important question. So when they had testified and preached the word of God, of the word of the Lord, they returned, verse 25, to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So preach Jesus so someone will know. First of all, those someones in the multitudes came to know. Someone claiming to be great came to know. Now, did he know Christ? He came to know some truth. But then we have this, which is a tremendous contrast. I love it. Someone wanting to know came to know. Someone wa it's always so exciting when someone wants to know. Someone has questions. I want to give you seven steps that I see here real quickly of how we can be preaching Jesus one-on-one -on -one with people. Someone wanting to know came to know. Verses 26 and 27, the angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise, go toward the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, 
who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this eunuch, a little about him. Very important and influential official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, which would be equivalent in power and stature to a pharaoh. He was in charge of all her treasury. The man went to Jerusalem to worship. Jewish law prohibited a eunuch from entering the assembly of the Lord, but he went anyway. He was concerned about his spiritual life, and he traveled many, many miles to worship God. Despite the power and wealth of this man, he had a vast emptiness in his soul. And let me say, as we look out into the world, no matter how successful someone may be, no matter how much riches they may have accumulated, no matter how much stature they might have, without God and Jesus Christ, there's a vast emptiness in their soul. There's an emptiness, there's a guilt, there's a fear of death in all of them. He's returning, wrestling with more questions than he came with. He's reading from the scriptures. Now, only the Jews were allowed to own scrolls. So it further points to his wealth. He was hungry. He heard about, no doubt, about the Jews, the God of Israel. And so he actually made ways where he went out and he purchased some scrolls. And he's in his chariot reading from the scrolls, looking at the book of Isaiah, what we would say Isaiah 53. How much he had read, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. I wonder if he hadn't been reading through Isaiah and going over and over. And as he's questioning, wondering, what's, who is this guy, who is he writing about? Interesting, in chapter 56 of Isaiah, eunuchs are talked about. So maybe you read further, unroll the scroll some more and read further into what we would call Isaiah 56. And he reads this. For the Lord, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, he goes, that's me, who keep my Sabbaths, choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house. Saying, that's me. Isaiah also, the sons of the foreigner, that's me. The word of God speaks to people right where they are. It's personal. It's individual. And as we preach Jesus, as we preach the word, God the Holy Spirit is going to speak to them. Now, that, maybe that's what happened with this eunuch. That's me. Right in the word there. That's me. So, step number one. An angel of the Lord spoke, arise and go towards. So he arose and went. Step number one is go, arise and go towards. As the Spirit is directing you. Now, here was a supernatural angel, Lord. I don't know what that mean, what that looked like. But God wants to prompt us. And as we're going towards school, as we're going toward work, as we're going toward moving to a different place, as we're going toward church, that's the first step. You got to go, as it says, arise and go towards. That's step number one. Now, in that, he arose and went. You got to love the character of Philip. Here, there's a revival in Samaria. It's happening place. God sends Peter and John to the revival in Samaria, but he sends Philip down to a desert 100 miles away. What's the deal with that, man? Philip just got up and went. No questions, no arguing, no excuses. He had this one-step obedience. And I would say to you and myself, we need a one-step obedience. We need to, he didn't tell him the second step until he took the first. We need a one-step obedience and then commit all the next steps to God. But go as prompted by the Holy Spirit. Second step, go near and overtake. Verse 27, when he had, come, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. Now, don't picture Ben-Hur. That's not the chariot we have here. What we have very likely is a four-wheeled cart being pulled by an oxen at a pace that was, was fairly slow so he could be reading while they're traveling. He had attendants with him, no doubt. So as Philip's making his way to run and meet him, you got you to sense there's a certain amount of apprehension here as, as those, well, who's this guy running up to us? And he's thinking, oh, man, what, what's going to happen here? You see, in every encounter, when we go near and overtake, when we're going in some direction, there's someone there, God's saying, I want you to go and talk to them. I want you to engage them. There's a certain apprehension that comes with that, particularly in carrying the gospel message. You see, you can talk about all kinds of things, but you start in your mind and heart committing yourself, being intent. I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. There's an apprehension that comes up because it's a spiritual battle. Third step, listen and ask a question. 
Verse 3, Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? Just a simple question to start the dialogue. Fourth step, make time for a conversation. Now, it's interesting what happened to me here, literally. When I was doing my notes, my point that I thought was make time for a conversation. Someone said, don't count conversions, count conversations. Well, I put it in my notes, and then I went, to, I went and printed it. And when I read it, it said, make time for a conversion. At, I forgot the at. I thought, that, I was ministered about that. Hey, when we go to talk to someone, are we believing that it's possible they're going to be converted? Make time for a conversion. I said, I'm going to put that on the top and the conversation. My, my, I want a mentality. I'm going to go and overtake them because they might, this might be the day of their salvation. But make time for a conversation. C.S. Lewis was saved after an extended all-night conversation with J.R. Tolkien and Hugo Dyson, esteemed scholars. All night they talked to him, and he said this, my long night, he said, I have just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ. My long night talk with Dyson and Tolkien had a great deal to do with it, unquote. Have a conversation. Step number five, open your mouth and declare Jesus in the scriptures. Let the Holy Spirit take the things that you're talking about and weave in the gospel. We have a class, an group that we do threads, the gospel threads, fantastic uh, little e-group. So Philip opened his mouth, trusting the scriptures, believing the word of God. Do you believe the word of God? Do you trust the scriptures? Do you know they're the power that people need, the truth that penetrates? Billy Graham, early on in his ministry, had a little crisis of faith because some of the esteemed leaders when he was young, some pastors even were questioning the authority of the Bible, the inerrancy of the Bible, the, all those things. And they were, they were sort of attacking those. And Billy Graham was wondering, okay, are they right? Is this something I can trust or not? And so he went to God with it, and he didn't really get any clear answer except this. He said, through it all, God, I'm going to believe by faith what you've told me about your word. I'm going to believe it's the word of God. And I believe, I believe very deeply that had he made a different decision, had he decided the word, isn't, the word of God isn't infallible, isn't inerrant, isn't God's word, had he decided that, I don't believe his ministry would be anything like it was. Because God honors his word and the power is in the word of God, not in the man. The word of God is to be preached so that God can be heard and people can be saved. Preach the word. Verse 36, as they went down the road, they came to some water. The eunuch said, see here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's step six. That's the most glorious step. Someone, you're leading someone to Christ. And that's what Philip did here. So he commanded the chariot, verse 38, to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and he baptized him. We had an interesting thing happen here on Easter Sunday several years ago. As I had this, uh, this uh, woman named Zeta in the water with me and I was talking to her and asking her about her, her salvation and when it was, she had questions about it. So rather than baptize her, I don't know if many, any of you remember this, but rather than baptize her, I had her go out of the water and I asked Max and Shauna Carlton, who were attending here at that point, if they take her into a room and talk to her, share the gospel, and, you know, just make sure she, she wanted to understand that. Well, about 20 minutes later, she, she, they came out of the room, and I said, so how did it go? She said, I just got saved. I said, awesome. And we brought her in water, and we baptized her right there. We have Easter Sunday coming up. I want to challenge you. I want to ask you to keep, the, keep people in mind that you can have them come on Easter Sunday. Who knows, but there might be a conversion in their lives. Invite them to come out for three different services, same service, 8, 8 9.30, and 11. We're going to have a baptism. And if someone responds to the Jesus call that morning, we're going to baptize them right there. Well, that's if they'll let us. <laughs> but I'm going to put the screws on, okay? <laughs> so they, he baptized him. And in the closing, preach Jesus everywhere you go. Would you take this to heart with me as we pray? And would you bow your heads, you believers in the room, close your eyes, please, and just pray right now? Because this is what we talked about earlier. If you're here 
not knowing Jesus Christ, then you do not have life. You do not know God. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I believe this is not the first time you've heard this call of Jesus to your heart. And here you are. Jesus came and died on a cross because there was no other solution to the problem of your sin. God provided his son, placed your sin on him on that cross. He died for your sin. All your crimes, all the things that you were born in and lived out. And God's provided that and now it's your choice. If you will believe the gospel, that you'll believe in your heart that your righteousness is not good enough, that you're separated from God, you don't know him, you've never made this confession of faith. There's just three steps I'm going to ask you to do. Number one, I'm going to ask you to raise up your hand so I can acknowledge you today. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to stand up and acknowledging Jesus Christ as your Lord. And third, I'm going to ask you to walk up to one of the tables on either side and there'll be someone there to take you through that step of being saved today. And so we're praying. And then just take a minute here, if that's you, and you know that you need to get right with God today. It's an urgent message for you that you would receive Christ today. You'd make that, take that step of faith in putting your life into God's hands through his gospel. If that's you, just slip up your hand. Please keep that up so I can acknowledge you. And that's all I want to do is just acknowledge you. We're not going to embarrass you at all. This is the most important decision you'll ever make. It's the decision between life and death, heaven and hell, literally. So as we're praying, if that's you, just raise your hand up and keep it up. I want to acknowledge you. We want to rejoice with all the angels in heaven that today is your day of getting your life squared away with God. Saying yes to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We're praying. Slip up your hand if that's you today. As we continue now, the final song, what, what I'd like you to do today in responding to the word is just simply to stand as you would feel, feel led through this last song and say, Lord, I would ask you to work in my heart that I will be a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I will preach him. I'm going to talk about Jesus everywhere I go. I'm going to talk about him because I want people to know that I know. And whenever that would be appropriate. And all we're doing is we're praying and standing up. We're saying, Lord, I want this to be a part of what's regularly happening in my heart and out of my life. So let's do that. And I'll come up after and I'll pray in closing.